As I thought about what to bring to you this week, I had a bit of a time deciding what kind of message would uh, meet our needs in the aftermath of Thanksgiving and heading into the Christmas season. And as I contemplated that, something struck me. And I began to think about how quickly we can move out of Thanksgiving from gratitude to grumbling. From giving thanks to finding fault. From contentment to disillusionment. I mean, really. We push away from the Thanksgiving table after giving thanks for all that we have and head into Black Friday to buy more stuff we don't need. And then the Lord reminded me of this group of people who exhibited that trait and a passage warning us of its results. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would, for a moment. We're going to begin there, but we're not going to stay there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can follow along as I read the first 11 verses. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, I realize that in my own life, I can easily get disillusioned and distracted by so many things, but only one thing is really necessary, as Jesus told Martha, if you remember. And what is that? To maintain a fixed focus on Christ. Amen? That focus should not be on what everybody else is doing around me. It's not on the difficult circumstances that may surround my daily life. It's not on the failures or successes of my past or the fitful frustrations in the present. And it must not be on the fears that I have regarding my future. But our attention must always and ever be riveted on the face of Christ. He must be the substance of our faith, the anchor of our hope, the object of our love. But how easy it is, even for us, the children of God, who have seen him work in such powerful ways, to become disillusioned. The fact is, is that oftentimes, if we're not careful, our spiritual journey with Christ can become very routine, very stale, very familiar. I speak with a lot of people, some of them church and ministry leaders, and man, many of them have become disillusioned with a multitude of real-life situations, the things like unrealized dreams, unrealistic goals. It could be unrelenting family responsibilities or unfulfilled personal relationships, unsatisfied expectations on the job with our government, at our churches, 
or maybe even with your Christian life. And I've struggled in my own life with some of those same things. These days, it seems that disillusionment seems to be having a field day in the world, doesn't it? And why is that? Is it because our lives are so full in America of suffering and pain that we cannot function? Is it because our faith is so underpowered that we cannot walk? Or is it because our gaze is fixed in the wrong place, on the wrong focal point? Is our understanding of Christianity and our assessment of all that that entails correct? Friends, disillusionment is no respecter of persons. In fact, is we all encounter it at some point in our journeys, don't we? I know I have. But then I run across a verse of scripture like John chapter 3, verse 14, which says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how in the world does that concept, that verse, relate to disillusionment? Well, I believe that it is the solution to our struggle with disillusionment. And in order for that to make sense to us, we need to go back. We need to go way back to the incident to which Jesus refers in this verse, back to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21 and verses 4 to 9. Would you turn there with me? That's going to be our main text for the morning. Although we will be visiting others, as you well know. Numbers 21 verses 4 to 9. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. If you don't have that, just listen. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient along the way, and they began to murmur against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here, there's nothing to drink, and we hate this wretched manna. And so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and many of them were bitten and died. And then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to the top of a pole. Those who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to the top of a pole. And whenever those who were bitten looked at the bronze snake, they recovered. Now here's disillusionment in the deepest sense of the word. I can relate to this incident every time I get a little cranky. Every time I decide to throw a pity party with yours truly as the guest of honor. Ever have those days? It's in those days that we should quickly recall this passage of Scripture and the warning that's contained within it. It's a simple spiritual warning that disillusionment, when left unchecked, can drive us into a spiritual tailspin, which can ultimately result in severe divine discipline. So think about it this way. Start with a basic two-door 
sedan. Some of you may have had this trip recently for Thanksgiving, loaded with luggage for a vacation. Add a father and a mother and three children under the age of 10. Aim that car at an objective that is 500 miles down the road, and after 350 miles have passed, examine that scene. Think about it in your head. What is the condition of what has become a traveling circus? Pretty discouraging, wouldn't you say? Disillusioning. Now magnify that situation thousands of times over, move it back about 3,500 years, eliminate the automobile, and you will begin to understand what Moses was facing here. The thrill of freedom and the excitement of the exodus out of Egypt were soon erased by the discomforts of a long travel with a bunch of whiny kids. Gratitude gives way to grumbling. And all of us need to identify the pattern that we see here in this text that we can easily fall into. Because for as many years as I've been following Jesus, I still need to learn this lesson again and again. Don't you? So let's learn to recognize the signs. In this text, I've uncovered five of them. Here's the first one. Disillusionment begins with personal discontentment. Verse 4 of Numbers 21. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Now, the background of this narrative is extremely important, so I'm going to take some time to give it to you. It's not unusual in Scripture for stories of defeat to follow right on the heels of great victory, right? It happens in our lives as well. You think you're doing so well spiritually, experiencing the hand of God in your life in extraordinary dynamic ways, and then it seems like almost overnight you get spiritually spanked with the hand of discipline. What is the deal, you say? Well, let's try to learn something from this text. There is such a contrast in this passage, okay? Back up to verse 1 in this text. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of the Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus, the name of the place was called Hormah. Israel had just defeated the Canaanites because of the Lord's gracious deliverance. They then set out to go around Edom because the king of Edom refused to let them go through their land. Big detour going around Edom. Remember now that they had already wandered around the wilderness for how many years? Forty. Forty years following Moses' lead. Aaron had just died, and they were sick of not getting to their desired destination. They were losing time, they were losing leaders, they were losing their faith, and they were losing all of their hope. Get the picture? So the rumblings began again. 
just as they had so many times before. And all over a trivial issue, food. Can't you understand these people's predicament? They were right at the edge of the promised land because Edom wouldn't let them pass through. Israel had to take the scenic route. You can find that in verses 17 to 21, actually in chapter 20. Look at it. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or the vineyard. We won't drink from a well. We'll go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said, we'll go by the highway. And if I am my livestock, do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through the territory. Let me ask you, how often do you become impatient with God and question his leadership in your life? Have you ever? Have you ever questioned his direction? How he's leading you? How many times have you complained about his provision? How frequently do we get utterly discouraged because of the hardships and the stress involved in this life? The many dangers and toils and snares. Not only is it hard, but sometimes you feel like you're going backwards. You're going away from the goal, not toward it. As the cross gets heavier, our impatience gets stronger, doesn't it? And it's right there. Right there. That's when we find ourselves in the greatest danger. Because if at that point we allow our discouragement and discontentment with our circumstances to go unchecked, something even worse results. Because the second point here is that discontentment breeds dishonor. Verse 5, chapter 21. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable food. People began to whine and complain and murmur and moan and notice who they attacked in this text. Who was it? They spoke against God and against Moses. They questioned God's lordship, Moses' leadership, and the very nourishment that literally kept them alive throughout their 40-year journey. This was Israel's continual pattern over and over and over again. Every time they got in a fix, instead of looking at themselves and question, what did I do? To do you know, am I at odds with God here out of his will? No, instead of doing that in order to decipher what God may be trying to show them, they attacked Moses for bringing them into the wilderness to die. Would that we have stayed in Egypt was their constant mantra. And if I were Moses, I would have said, would that you had. 
They forgot about the exodus, God's miraculous deliverance from the iron furnace of Egypt. They lost sight of the miracles that God performed. They lost hope in the promises that God gave them. They conveniently developed amnesia about how they ended up wandering in the first place, which was their lack of faith and their disillusionment with God when they saw the giants that were in the land of promise. They could have been in that land 40 years prior had they obeyed in faith. But they didn't. It started right out of the chute. Exodus 15, they complained about the water. In Exodus 16, they complained about the food. In Exodus 17, they complained about the water again. In Exodus, uh, Numbers chapter 11, they complained about adversity. They complained about the lack of meat. And then God sent them meat, more than they could bear. So much so that it was, even while it was in between, in their teeth, they despised it. Be careful what you ask for. Numbers 12, they complained about Moses' authority. Numbers 14, they complained about because they lacked faith and they were overcome by their fear. And in Numbers 21 here, they complained about the food and the water yet again. Forty years later, they haven't learned a thing. They were not only traveling in circles on foot, but they were traveling in circles in their heart. Around and around and around they go. You know what was characteristic about the Israelites? They were easily buoyed up by anything that satisfied their physical senses. But when their senses became dull, they felt deprived. They got depressed. They became discontent. And it was there that they began to dishonor the hand that led them and fed them. Friends, let me say this. In all humility, it takes a heavenly appetite to enjoy heavenly food. They despise that manna, they said. And we're no different than they are, are we? Not really. Because when our senses aren't assuaged, we, we do what they did. We go high chair on God. We do. Picture yourself in that chair right now. I'm not getting in it. I did that once before and preached half a sermon from that high chair. I'm older now, wiser. You picture yourself in that high chair. You can picture me in it if you want to. I mean, we get in that high chair and we cry and we stomp and we kick our feet and we pout and we have a downright conniption if we don't get our way or our needs are not met in the way that we want them met. Face it, the contemporary church of Jesus Christ with all its emphasis on felt needs and meeting them has gone high chair on God to some extent. And maybe, actually it's better to say we've gone eye chair on God. Because in a large sense, church for many people has become all about me, me, me. 
Don't you know that the spiritual nourishment that all of us get in abundance on a daily basis through books and through podcasts and through conferences and through small groups and through prayer meetings and through services and videos and music and worship songs and hymns and you name it has been graciously given to us by the hand of God and it's not just meant for us. It's also been given to provide fuel for us to serve others and to bring them into the kingdom of God. And the question is, are we doing that? Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Are we doing that collectively? Or are we becoming fat little spiritual babies, spiritually stuffed, fussing about the food, constantly consuming, yet continually complaining? Friends, we have nothing to complain about. We're so spiritually stuffed. Our spiritual belts are on the last hole. We have so many spiritual fat rolls under our chins that we need a bookmark to find our mouths. We've had our fill of wonderful worship experiences, hours and hours of practical biblical teaching. We turn up our noses at the messages we receive and complain about the songs because we've grown tired of the taste. And all the while, there's still a thirsty, hungry world out there dying to be brought to Christ. And we don't exist for ourselves, friends. I'm preaching to me too. How much impact are we making on this world? I heard Erwin McManus once say that church is spiritually bulimic. Quote, people gorge and binge gluttonously on Sundays and then go home and throw it all up and then starve themselves all week long and come back to feed again on Sunday. See, the grumblers in Numbers 21 here, they not only dishonored God and Moses, but they completely dishonored God's provision. God never let them starve, left them to starve, not the whole time they were wandering around. They, he didn't leave them st to starve or to die of thirst. In all the years they wandered, he always provided. Their shoes didn't even wear out, the scripture says. They just simply got tired of the taste of God's provision and treated it with contempt. They actually loathed it, it says here. They called it miserable food in verse 5. We loathe this miserable food. They were completely repulsed by God's answer to their problem. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses warned them yet again. He says, beginning in verse 2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. He's warning them before they go into the promised land. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the, the Lord. 
Jesus quoted that verse, Satan, when he was tempted in the desert. Your clothing did not wear out, verse 4, on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Most of us as Christ followers, we wouldn't think of taking the Lord's name in vain, would we? That would be blasphemous. But how many of us feel the same way about taking the Lord's provision in vain? How quick are we to grumble because what God provides for us doesn't quite measure up to what we want? What provision of God are you perilously close to loathing today? What, what do we call miserable? What are you calling miserable? This is more serious than we think. When we reject God's provision, we are in essence rejecting his grace. Israel never learned this lesson in over a thousand years after this text. Thousand, fourteen hundred years after this text, they committed the ultimate rejection of God's provision in Jesus. In John chapter 6, in verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. Here they are again, grumbling yet again, thousand years later, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. Later on, he said, these words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, when we loathe God's gracious provision, it is the epitome of dishonoring God and it propels us downward into the spiral even further one step at a time. So the third step in this downward spiral is that dishonor ultimately brings discipline. Verse 6 in Numbers 21. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Have you ever noticed that there's a pattern to complaining? 
when you, when you start in on it, when I start in on it, when, when anybody, when you're listening to somebody complain. You ever notice the pattern? It's habit forming. And the tendency is to go beyond where we left off before. So we start complaining about one thing, and then we move to something else, and it gets worse than the one before, and worse and worse and worse. Becoming more outrageous and more outspoken. It's extremely rare that a complaining person becomes milder in his or her complaints, isn't it? It usually escalates and becomes more self-centered, more self-serving, more self-destructive, unless, of course, the Lord intervenes in it. And that's what we hope for, that the Lord intervenes in it before something worse befalls them. There's something very human about Israel's complaining, isn't there? We understand it. We get it. But the state of their heart should have caused more depression than the state of their circumstances. They were backtracking all right, but they were heading to the Red Sea. Think about that for a minute. The very sight of that body of water should have reminded them of God's great delivering power. Amen? Instead, they threw it in God's face, and God, tired of hearing their grumbling and sent judgment upon them, the people received an answer from heaven, and it wasn't better bread, was it? Instead of being preserved by that miserable food, they found themselves being poisoned by snakes that had never bothered them before in 40 years of wandering in that desert. Now, all of a sudden, they're being bit by these poisonous snakes. In reality, however, it wasn't the snakes that was killing them. It was the sting of sin that was killing them. And it equally kills us. Eventually, our constant complaints and contempt against God burns us, and we find ourselves not being able to climb out of that mess that we've caused ourselves, and we realize that we need help beyond ourselves to get out of the mess that we've caused. It is then that change can occur and must occur if we are to survive. But even in the midst of serious judgment, God offers gracious relief again. And so the fourth thing that we see here is that God's discipline fosters a cry for deliverance. Look at verse 7. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. That's a good start. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. So intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Immediately. They went to Moses as they had before and begged him to pray for them that God would remove the serpents. And isn't that the way it is? We get ourselves into a predicament and a mess and we want it removed. And that's our prayer. God, get me out of this mess uh, again. But God often has other ideas, doesn't he? Moses, true to spiritual form, and I love Moses, he prayed. He never gave up on these people. I don't get it. We would all have given up at this point. But Moses prayed. And the answer he got was not what anyone expected, was it? And nor do we get the answers that we expect exactly the way we want them 
a lot of the time. Here's the lesson. In the face of the discipline we sometimes bring upon ourselves, we are in no position to dictate to God how we are to be delivered. God usually has other plans, and that usually for our good. Deuteronomy 8, verses 15 and 16 says this, He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand. Ultimately, God wants us to learn that deliverance, and here's the fifth thing, deliverance demands humble dependence. Verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Instead of taking the snakes away, the people had to get their fill of them. The answer to their request was not removal, but repentance. The answer to their prayers demanded something completely incomprehensible to them. Moses had to make an image of the very thing that plagued them and lift it high on a pole for all of them to see. And when they were bitten, they only had to look at this detestable image in order to have their life preserved. Obedience. Think for a moment of what Moses was asked to do. He had to take the time to make the image while the screams and the cries of pain were ringing in his ears. We read these verses and one verse leads to the next verse. But we don't recognize the fact that it takes time to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And all the while, these people are suffering. Moses had to make the image of the very thing that was killing them. And God had at one time forbidden people to make for themselves graven images, right? Of any kind, because of the inherent danger of idolatry. Yet now Moses was commanded to do such a thing. He had to make an image of the very thing that plagued them, a bronze casting of the very creature that had become associated with the evil one himself, a serpent. In the garden, at the end of the book of Revelation, a serpent. Think of the culture shock this must have had on the people. This must have been on those people. And as the people had turned the gracious bread from heaven into something detestable, so the Lord turned something detestable, a symbol of death and destruction, into a source of life and deliverance in the cross of Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, verses 31 and to 33. says, now is this judgment upon the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death that he was going to die. This is Jesus speaking. Are you making the connection here yet? 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Each one of us this morning needs to look at our own life to determine where we have followed this pattern of disillusionment with God and his provision. Is it possible that the pain that you're experiencing in your life, if you're, if you're experiencing the hand of discipline, are experiencing God's hand of discipline on you, that that pain is God's discipline on you? It isn't always, but sometimes it is. Only you and God can determine that. Is he trying to get your attention? When our discouragement and disillusionment is the result of our sin, it will be defeated when we see the Son of Man lifted up and we depend upon him, Christ. When we realize that the wages of sin is still death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that the answer to our dilemma is personal repentance and dependence, humble dependence upon Christ himself. To get out of the high chair, you must reach for your father. And no one comes to the father but by Jesus Christ and the grace of his cross. God didn't take away the snakes. He didn't even remove the pain. All this text says is that he provided a way to life. And it was the way of faith. They had to believe that by one simple act of obedience to the will of God that they would live. They had to believe that God would do what he said he would do. They didn't get what they wanted they got what they needed. He provided a way of escape for them in him. One of my favorite books of all time, A Way Through the Wilderness, Jamie Buckingham, and it's out of print now, by the way, but Jamie Buckingham wrote these words. He said, the only time a wilderness experience becomes a tragedy is when we fail to understand that the purpose of adversity is to force us to look to God. This ought to be an example to us. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, all these events happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. If you think you're standing strong, the Bible says, be careful, take heed. For you too may fall into the same sin. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful and he will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand against it. Because when you are tempted, he will show you the way out so you will not give in to it. See, God may not remove the uncomfortable circumstances of our lives. He may not take away our physical pain or our financial problems. He may not mend our broken marriage or cure our alcoholic family member. 
He may lead you in a direction that seems way off course from the one you think you should be on. But the fact is, he is your only deliverance from the ultimate destroyer. And he has provided the way of escape in his son, Jesus. If you believe in the crucified and resurrected son of God, you will have eternal life, the scripture says. So, we must return then to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And it all makes sense to us now. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next verse is the one you all know. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Our disillusionment is defeated when we learn to trust in Christ. You know, following the 9-11 tragedy, one company invited the remaining members of the other companies whose offices were decimated by that attack on the Twin Towers to share their available office space. And at a morning meeting that they had had that day, the head of security shared some stories of why many of these people were still alive. These were some of the reasons. The head of one company got in late because it was his son's first day of kindergarten. So he was late getting there. Another man was alive because it was his turn to bring the donuts to the office. One woman was late because her alarm clock didn't go off. Someone else was late because he was stuck in traffic due to an accident on the New Jersey Turnpike. Can't you see it? I'm going to be late. Stuck in traffic. Another one missed the bus. Someone else spilled food on her clothes and had to change. One person's car wouldn't start. One went back to answer the telephone. One had a child that dawdled and wasn't ready when he should have been. I can hear that one. <laughs> You're going to make me late for work. Get dressed. Get in the car. You know. Another one couldn't get a taxi. One man put on a new pair of shoes that morning, took the various means to get to work, but before he got there, developed a blister on his foot, so he stopped at a drugstore to buy a Band-Aid. Saved his life. So when you're stuck in traffic, my friends, when the elevator gets stuck, turn back to answer a ringing telephone, or you're becoming annoyed while your child is having a D-da day, Think to yourself, this is exactly where God wants me to be at this very moment. The next time your morning seems like it's going all wrong and you can't seem to find your keys and you hit every traffic light on the strip and are tempted to complain, remember that God is watching over everything in your life. Don't get disillusioned. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Because when your lot in life seems like it should be a lot more, and when you're tired of the same old routine, and you're questioning God's wisdom and direction and timing in your life, when discontentment threatens to overtake you and propel you into this dangerous downward spiral of dishonoring God, get out of the high chair and look to the cross. Amen. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, life is unfair. But he endured unfair treatment that we might have life in him and have it abundantly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how wise you are, Father, teaching us not only with words, but with unforgettable lessons. How would we understand deep satisfaction if you had not allowed us to hunger? How would we understand faith or hope or patience if you had not required us to wait? Most of all, Father, how would we have recognized you as our Heavenly Father if you had not lovingly carried us in your arms when we could not walk or disciplined us as beloved children when we would not obey? Father, you did such great things for your people when you brought them into the land of promise. Then as now, you provided immense blessings, unimaginable benefits. But now as then, true to human form, our pride overtakes us. It overtakes our gratitude and arrogance, eclipses our awe of you. And we begin to applaud ourselves for having done so well. Forgive us, our Father, for our poor memories. And remind us that every good and perfect gift comes from your storehouse. And when tempted to forget you, remind us, Lord, of your faithfulness to us in providing us Jesus, our way of escape, in whose name we pray. Amen.